the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. Now, for those of you who listening to the show for the first time, the show is in two parts, not necessarily equal parts. The first part of the show, we deal about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. And as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, and today we're going to be talking about history. We have Neil O'Dowd, who's going to be talking about the Irish and the Civil War and President Lincoln. And we have one of my favorite television historians who used to be on the Western Channel all the time, on the History Channel, Roger McGrath, and he's going to be talking about Bass Reeves. It's still Black History Month, and Bass Reeves was a a U.S. Marshal in the Oklahoma Territory for about 30 years. And he's forgotten now. He didn't kill a lot of guys, so maybe that's why he's forgotten. And of course, there were a lot of marshals in the Oklahoma Territory, but he still was a marshal for 30 years and had quite a few accomplishments. So... We want to hear about Bass Reeves. All right. Now, as you know, each week right now, we usually have an attorney from our office to to ask some email questions to come in. Today, we have Rose DeFrancisco. And and how are you doing today, Rose? Hi, Mike. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Doing well today. All right. Tell the audience something about yourself. Where did you go to law school? Where did you grow up? So I went to law school at New York Law downtown. I worked full time as a paralegal during the day. I grew up on Staten Island, but my parents came over from Italy and Calabria. So if you have any Italian uh, relatives that need some planning work, please come down and see us. Se avete parenti italiani, venite trovare. We'd love to help you guys. Where's Avellino? I know it's more north than Calabria, which is where I'm from. Okay, so you know Joe Piscopo's going over there and. That's right. In a couple of months. That's I don't right. know if they still have any seats left on that tour. <laughs> you have to get but those Perillo so, tours. <laughs> get, get with Perillo tours and, you know. Excellent. You, you can see that area of Italy. So Very good. And I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun with Joe Piscopo and Frank Morano. Maybe we could get the whole office to go. Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, I don't can think we they have go? enough seats for that. Oh. <laughs> What's our question today? First question is from Dawn in Queens. Dawn has a will, and in her will, she says that everything's going to her husband and then her kids. Her question is, if she gets divorced, which she's contemplating, and she doesn't change her will, what happens? Does she have to get a new will? Well, if she gets divorced under uh, you know, New York state law, 
once you get divorced, if you say, I leave everything to my husband or I name my husband as a beneficiary or executor, the husband's name is, is, I wouldn't say automatic, but it's stricken from the will. Now, that still may leave some other problems. Who's the executor? Are Him. The, are, yeah, and who are, you know, do we have minor kids there, and are they old enough to be executed? Do you want the husband still to be guardian if they're minor kids? And, and, you know, a lot of people, even when they get divorced, they say, my husband's a good father. I want him to take care of the kids. So those are the questions. She probably should redo her will. But as far as if something happened to her, it wouldn't go to her husband. At the same time, she should also look at her beneficiary designations and see who's on them because she shouldn't have, you know, a divorced husband or a husband about to be divorced as a, a designated beneficiary on any of her accounts. And here's one thing I think sometimes, and I don't understand where it's coming from. Some people say, well, I'll wait till after the divorce to do my will. You should do the will as soon as possible because let's just say somebody's in the, in, in the middle of a divorce, especially if it's a bitter divorce. That person gets hit by a car. There's a car accident. The person dies in the accident. There's a lawsuit. You're still married to the spouse. They would get most of, if not all, your estate. Do a will. You know, there still may be a claim by the spouse, but at least leave as much as you can to the children or other beneficiaries, depending on the circumstances. And, you know, I can't say this enough. If you're in the middle of divorce, do a will. Yes, depending on the circumstances of the divorce, the spouse may have a claim. But again, in a lot of cases, that claim is within the discretion discretion of the judge, the surrogate, whether to enforce that claim or not. And the people in the middle of a divorce, depending on the circumstances, may not allow the claim. So do a will as fast as possible if you're in one of those circumstances. And you can always, you know, you can always change it later, again, depending on the circumstances. But everybody should have a will. And if you're getting divorced, you definitely should have a will because you don't want the term we sometimes use, laughing air. All right. Is there another question, Rose? The next question is from Lillian in Brooklyn. Her question is, her brother recently died and he previously told her that he had her as a beneficiary on his bank account. She went there with the power of attorney, but they told her that she has to get letters. What kind of letter does she need? And can you give her this letter? Okay, what she probably means is letters testamentary or letters of administration. Now, this is banks do this a lot, you know, and they make it sound like a letter is just something that somebody can print up and issue. When they say they're letters, you need letters, that means, again, you need letters of administration. That's usually when somebody passes away and they have no will. You have to go to court and prove you're next of kin. And then the court, after it goes through its procedures, will issue letters of administration to the person who applies for administrator, you know, assuming they're qualified, they're not convicted of a crime, they're next of kin, and so forth and so on. And that's one reason everybody should have a will. If nothing else, you want to appoint an executor. If there's an executor under the will, ordinarily the executor can get uh, letters testamentary, and those letters allow the person named as executor or administrator to collect those assets in the deceased person's name alone. Who gets the assets after that? The, the will would determine the beneficiaries. Letters of administration, it would go to the next of kin by law, and, and that can get convoluted depending who's left. But did, did the brother have you know children? Did he have a spouse? So forth and so on. So apparently he didn't have the person named as, as beneficiary because if they were named a beneficiary, the bank ordinarily would turn it over to the named beneficiary unless there's some other kind of problem. So letters testamentary means you have to go through probate. Probate. You have to go through court. And ordinarily, when we're planning in advance, we don't want to have our relatives have to go through court. We don't want them to have to go through probate. You avoid going through probate. When you pass away, there are no assets in your name alone when you pass away. You have a designated beneficiary. If you own real estate, you have your real estate in a trust. If you have bank accounts, again, you have designated beneficiaries. You have an IRA, a 401k, some kind of retirement plan. Put a name beneficiary. 
But even then, it's not always as easy as we say, because let's say the your, your next of kin are minor children. You don't necessarily want to name them as beneficiary straight out, because let's say you have a child of 16, 17 years of age, you name that child as beneficiary on your IRA. Well, in theory, some taxes would have to be paid right away, and that causes a problem because you know, the child can't legally collect that asset and pay the taxes. And of course, the worst part of that is, and we saw that sometimes September 11th, you know, a child under the age of 18 was a beneficiary. That child gets those assets on his or her 18th birthday, which is not necessarily the best plan. If you have assets, you got to do some planning. And even if you don't have assets, if you have minor children, you need a guardian for those minor children. So again, everybody needs a will. Whether you need a trust or not depends. And if you own real estate, I would strongly recommend we do a trust. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, Connors & Sullivan. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, years ago, I used to love the History Channel, and one of the guys I always loved seeing or Arts Entertainment Network was Roger McGrath, because he knew everything about the Old West. And we invited him on the show today to talk about Bass Reeves, you know, a, a forgotten hero of the Old West. How are you doing today, Mr. McGrath? Well, I'm doing fine, Mike, and thanks. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. It's Black History Month. Bass Reeves, forgotten hero. Who was he? Bass Reeves is one of the good guys, and uh, I sure wish we... Um, had some of these uh, heroes more in the public mind uh, today. He was a lawman who served for 32 years um, out of Fort Smith, Arkansas, and uh, into Indian Territory, Uh, the longest serving of any U.S. deputy marshal out of the 
uh, hanging judge, uh, Isaac Parker's uh, courtroom there in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Uh, he made hundreds of uh, arrests, um, shot to death uh, four men in the line of, of duty, uh, had his, his hat shot off his own head at, at one time and his belt buckle shot off at another time. So narrow escapes with uh, death. Uh, served honorably for uh, all these years. Um, and actually, he's, he's gained quite a bit of rec- recognition in historical circles. And there's actually a statue of him, a bronze statue, on horseback uh, at the U.S. Uh, Marshals uh, Museum in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Um, but uh, unfortunately, uh, hasn't uh, gained a lot of traction, especially in black culture in America today. Going back in history, how did an African-American become a U.S. Marshal back in those days? Well, well, actually, uh, rather easily. Um, during, he, he ran away from his uh, master, uh, who was a friend, uh, during the Civil War. He's kind of a personal valet to, uh, uh, to his master, who was a son of a uh, the owner of a, a, a large, uh, large farm, and uh, he had more or less inherited uh, Bass Reeves as a servant. And uh, this, uh, this son of the, uh, the large farm owner went off into the Civil War, and he took Bass Reeves with him. And evidently, there was a dispute over a card game, and Bass Reeves got in some trouble, and he ran off, and he ran off nearby, right into Indian Territory. And this is during the Civil War, so uh, nobody bothered with him much there. And he and he lived with uh, uh, in in and among uh, the five civilized tribes: the Cherokee, Creeks, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Seminole, in uh, what would today be southeastern Oklahoma, Indian Territory. And he learned uh, the Muscogean language of four of those tribes and the Iroquois language of the Cherokee. So by the time the Civil War ended, he was very familiar, intimately familiar with Indian Territory and also the languages uh, spoken there. Uh, and he, he returned uh, to Arkansas after the Civil War uh, and settled on a farm, uh, got married and started raising a large family. Well, when the feds began to try to organize uh, this area west of Arkansas, um, they they appointed Isaac uh, Parker as the judge of this tremendous territory. It's about 75,000 square miles, kind of no man's land. Um, and it was just a, a territory, uh, this Oklahoma territory, Indian territory. Uh, and they had to hire uh, deputy marshals. And the, the marshal was uh, a James uh, Fleming uh, Fagan who had served as, uh, from Arkansas, had served as a, a, ultimately as a major general in the Confederate uh, cavalry, a uh, prominent uh, general. And he went about hiring these uh, deputies. Well, one of them, who had already gained a reputation because he had been hired privately at different times as a guide and a scout into Indian Territory by some bounty hunter or somebody, uh, was Bass Reeves. And uh, uh, Marshal Fagan made him one of his first hires. Uh, who could be better than somebody that was not only 
uh, familiar with the territory, but spoke the uh, languages in there. And so uh, one of the first hires there was uh, Bass Reeves. Now, there may have been some other blacks hired at the same time or about the same time. Uh, we like to say Bass Reeves was the, the first black U.S. Deputy Marshal west of the Mississippi. But he may be a, among a few. Um, and there there seems to have been no bias or discrimination or anything against these uh, deputy U.S. marshals because they list all the deputy marshals and they don't identify them by race. So you have to know something else about them to identify, oh, he was white, he was white, he was black. And, and Fagan hired uh, uh, Bass Reeves. Uh, and so it surprised, seems surprising to people today, but not in those days, and especially not for somebody like Bass Reeves, who spoke the languages and uh, of the Indian tribes in Indian territory and was had lived there for four or five years during the Civil War. What are some of his famous exploits? What what story or two can you tell the audience that would represent his character in in, in history? Well, I I, th- I think one of the best, um, and you have to remember when they went out, they didn't go out. Um, alone on on uh, horseback. They went out certainly on horseback, but there was also um, a cook uh, driving a wagon and an assistant and maybe an Indian scout that went with them Indian, into Indian territory. Uh, so that's how he normally went out, which is slightly different image than somebody would have. But remember, most of the time he was bringing in uh, people who were trafficking in liquor. And, the, and these may be uh, whites or Indians, uh, but that was prohibited. Uh, but that was one of the, the major crimes, uh, recurrent crimes in Indian territory, and uh, also horse theft and cattle theft, because they'd steal from uh, Texas ranches and and drive the cattle of the horses into Indian territory, kind of a no man's land. So he would often have handcuffed or shackled uh, criminals stacked in the wagons and driving them back. But once he, he he sat down at some point of operation in Indian territory, he would often don a disguise. And one time there were two criminals known to be holed up in the in their mother's cabin in the Indian territory there. And he thought, well, the only way I can approach without a fight, because these were hardened uh, gunmen, uh, criminals and gunmen, uh, he disguised himself as uh, a farmhand, uh, dressed uh, shabbily, and uh, and he shuffled up to the the cabin and and asked for work. And as the story goes, he uh, they they didn't think twice about it because of his dress, because of his manner, um, and he had been a a farmer himself, and so. Uh, he knew everything about the the operation of this farm. He fit right in, and he actually spent the night there. And as the story goes, during the night he handcuffed uh, both of these uh, men in their sleep. Um, and in the the morning, his assistants in the wagon arrived, and he, and uh, they loaded him aboard. And the and the the mother of these two criminals. Uh, and evidently they're rather infamous in that area. Uh, and she was a tough old gal, and she ran after the wagon 
uh, hurling all sorts of uh, epithets at, at bass reefs for miles. <laughs> and, uh, and evidently these men had been operating for years and nobody else had been able to get close to them. We're here. We've seen movies with Wild Bill Hickok in it. We've seen movies about Wyatt Earp. Why hasn't there been, maybe I'm missing it, but why hasn't there been a major film about Bass Reeves? Well, there actually has been a uh, film about Bass Reeves okay. in, in, 20, in 2010. Um, not a particularly uh, great movie, uh, but uh, but yeah, there there was. And the, the, problem, the problem with that is he was operating out in this kind of no man's land of Indian territory. And most of his arrests were for uh, liquor trafficking and horse or, or cattle theft. So it wasn't a spectacular gunfight that we know him for or a series of gunfights in uh, some of the famous cattle towns or, or mining camps of the Old West. Um, and you, likewise, there's all sorts of his fellow, fellow deputy marshals out there uh, that were heroic Greek lawmen, uh, white counterparts, that you don't know about either. Bill Tillman, uh, you wouldn't know about him. Historians do, and old western, uh, old west buffs do. Uh, Chris uh, Madston, um, Heck Thomas. Uh, they were known as the Three Guardsmen. They were operating at the same time in the same territory. No movies about them. So I don't think it's because he he was uh, black, but I think it was a circumstance of uh, of the area. If he had been in some great gunfight in some town at the time, uh, we probably would long before 2010 have had a, a movie about him. Also, he was illiterate. He didn't read or write, so he wrote nothing about himself. Uh, and some of these ones you know about had the advantage of knowing Bat Masterson. Now, Bat Masterson himself uh, was a, a prominent uh, buffalo hunter and and then uh, lawman and, and gunfighter on the western frontier. And he became a journalist in New York City. <laughs> so he wrote about all these guys. Uh, so a Bass Reeves or a Bill Tillman and some others, they they didn't have a, a scribe writing about them in in the in the Big Apple at the turn of the century. Can you just summarize for the audience the the accomplishments of Bass Reeves and why he should be remembered today? As I said, Bass Reeves is one of the good guys that we should remember. I mean, here he was an honorable lawman serving for 32 years, the longest of anybody out of the famous Isaac Parker, the hanging judge, Fort Smith, Arkansas, and working in that Indian territory uh, from 1875 to 1907, and making hundreds of arrests, including his own son. So uh, he had a large family. One of his sons was Benjamin, or Benny, as, as they called him, who shot to death his wife uh, in some kind of jealous rage. He had uh, accused her of having an affair with somebody, and, and he shot her to death. And uh, nobody else wanted to take in Bass Reeves' son, and Bass Reeves said, no, no, I, I, I'll do it myself. And he took his own son in. His son was tried and convicted and sent off to Fort uh Leavenworth, where he uh, served about ten years before he was before he was pardoned, 
But that's the kind of guy Bass Reeves was. The law was the law, and he he uh, he saw to it that it was in, in enforced uh, equally and evenly. Because remember, he was arresting Indians, whites, and blacks. So um, this this kind of career for and that kind of longevity, making the number of arrests uh, that he did and having close calls with death uh, certainly seems some figure that we should honor in American history. Professor McGrath, thank you for bringing history to life. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Okay, thank you very much, Mike. It was my pleasure. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. In 1948, the UN published the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, stating that, quote, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. And it also states, everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. Isn't it time for nations to pay attention to these statements when they craft their policies on abortion? This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is Neil O'Dowd to talk about his book, Abraham Lincoln, The Irish and the Civil War. How are you doing today, Neil? I'm doing very good, Mike. Thank you. The point of the book and, you know, the Irish and the Civil War, but more more importantly, the Irish and their relationship with Abraham Lincoln. What is the book about? Um, It's a book about hidden history. It's, It's a book about the fact that the background to the Civil War in terms of Irish people was it was the aftermath of the Irish famine. There were 20,000 Irish a month coming into America during the years of the Civil War. They formed about 20% of the Union Army. Uh, Lincoln obviously was not Irish himself, but 
when he, he was uh, in Springfield, he was surrounded by Irish people, Muslim Democrats. A lot of his political opponents were Irish. But also in his own home, he had Irish nannies who looked after his kids. And his wife was known to dislike them but because they used to bring boyfriends in and stuff like that. But Lincoln had a great relationship with them. So it's just a personal aspect of Lincoln that hasn't been written about, but also a much broader aspect, which I think is, is one of those that has not been covered enough in the Civil War, which is the role of immigrants in, in both armies, because there were Irish who fought in the South as well. Yeah, when you say 20% of the Union Army, where did you get that number from? That's basically from the Thomas Francis Marble by the um, uh, New York Times writer. Um, Timothy Egan. His name is me at the moment. Timothy Egan. He talked about Yeah, Timothy Egan, yes. At the beginning of the Civil War, Lincoln calls for volunteers. What's the reaction from the Irish? The reaction from the Irish originally is hostile because Lincoln Day associate with the Republican Party and the Know Nothings. And the interesting thing about the Republican Party, they were anti-slavery, but they were also anti-Irish. So it was a strange dichotomy. Uh, a lot of the Republican Party resented the Irish coming in. They were very poor. They didn't have uh, particularly sound. So they were, in many ways, immigrants who were aborted as far as the Republicans could see it. So they were suspicious. But uh, there was a wonderful car, uh, archbishop here in New York, Archbishop Hughes at the time, who was Irish-born, who saw what Lincoln was trying to do and who felt that if the Irish stood up and fought for the American flag, it would mean a tremendous amount in terms of how they were viewed by Americans because they were obsessed with how they were viewed like a lot of immigrants are. And so under the tutelage and under the support of of Archbishop Hughes, uh, Irish began to sign up for the Union Army. And many of them signed up literally right off the boat. Now, I I think one of the things that some people sometimes forget or don't know about, the Irish Brigade at Antietam, at Fredericksburg, at Gettysburg, they were all volunteers. The draft hadn't started yet. They were all volunteers. And the interesting background is General Marr, Thomas Marr, who was probably, in my opinion, the greatest Irishman who ever came to America. Uh, They were looking at the Civil War as a rehearsal ground for attacking Britain because they were Fenians. They were Irish Fenians who had been forced out of Ireland. Marr himself had an amazing story. He was sent as a convict to Australia, made a spectacular escape from Australia, and came to New York where he was fated and tens of thousands of people turned out for him. Uh, But he saw very much the idea of the Irish training to be soldiers in the Civil War uh, for the bigger battle for them, which would be against Britain, which eventually, by the way, ended up with an Irish brigade invading Canada after the Civil War, which actually didn't work out too well. Well, the fact is that General Maher, who is probably the most famous Irishman in American history, um, wanted Irish soldiers to join the Union Army for two reasons. One, because he wanted them to be accepted as Americans. But two, that he saw a conflict looming after the Civil War, where he was a Fenian, a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, whose stated aim was to drive the British out of Ireland. And he wanted to get his men with experience in military affairs. So that when they decided to try and remove Britain from Ireland, they would have military backgrounds. So it was an ambitious plan on two levels. After the war, the Irish Brigade actually, an Irish Brigade actually did invade Canada, not very successfully, which was a British uh, dominion at the time. So there was two two levels of why the Irish joined. One, because they wanted to be seen as Americans, and two, because they felt 
the old enemy had to be fought and it was great to get military experience by uh, joining the Union. What did Abraham Lincoln think about the Irish immigrants? What What was his opinion of them? The remarkable thing about Abraham Lincoln is that he really liked them. Everybody around him, including his law partner, who said every Irish throat should be slit and, you know, killed, basically. Um, there was enormous anti-Irish sentiment because of the fact that they were arriving in in such numbers. But Lincoln, even in his private writing, had an extraordinary affection for them. And uh, a lot of it is traced to these women who took care of his kids who were Irish nannies. A lot of it is traced to his, his early law partners, uh, you know, very, very extreme view that, that Lincoln did not share. But I, I think in terms of as he went through life, <clears throat> he learned, for instance, uh, Robert Emmett's speech from the dock. That was one of his party pieces. Um, he issued a resolution in Congress calling for Ireland to be free. Um, he knew Francis Maher. He, he was a big fan of his. Um, and he knew many of the leaders, John Corcoran, who was the other leader of the Irish, <clears throat> Irish Brigade, General Corcoran, Michael Corcoran. Um, so he was constantly mixing with them, and he knew that they would be very important in terms of making up the numbers in the American Civil War on the Union side. And in fact, there is one argument that could be made that when it came down to the war of attrition and it was a numbers game, it was the Irish who gave the... Uh, the Union the numerical superiority. The other thing about that is the, the Confederacy recognized that and sent a priest and a bishop to Ireland warning the Irish not to come to America, that they'd be shanghaied off the boat and forced to fight for the Union because they feared the number of Irish would also tip the balance in favor of um, of, of the Union side. Now, there were a number, of course, the numbers weren't quite, uh, well, obviously weren't nearly as large, but there were a number of Confederate Irish regiments. Yes, there were. Um, I mean, again, the, the Irish who joined the Confederacy, many joined for a different reason, because they saw the Union Army as anti-Catholic. And there were a lot of very publicized incidents where Union soldiers went into Catholic churches and destroyed them. And those stories took on great strength in the South and uh, ensured that Irish people joined up on the on the uh, Confederate side. So there was a number of Irish regiments. They figured the number of Irish fighting on the Union side, on the Republican, uh, sorry, on the Confederate side was about 20,000. And what is your number on the Union side? Um, I, I, You know, obviously you're, you're always, there's a couple of leading historians who differ on this question. Some believe it's as high as 200,000, which would, would not surprise me at all. Um, when you look at the great battles, when you look at Gettysburg, when you see the number of Irish who took part in that battle, and you see the, the hugely important role of the Philadelphia or the Pennsylvania 69, who were all Irish uh, on, after during Pickett's march, uh, there's no question that there was a huge amount of Irish in the Union Army. The exact numbers have never been properly identified but historians put it around 200,000. How would you how would you distinguish between at that time somebody let's say who was an Irish American, you know, an American born of Irish parents or an Irish person who was born on the other side? You couldn't really, you're absolutely right, but you know, obviously 35,000 Irish died in the American Civil War, Irish born, we know that for a fact. Um which is a huge number more than any Irish who died in any battle 
in Irish history, with the exception of World War One. So there were huge numbers of Irish who were from the old country who joined the army. But, you know, the Irish brigades were probably the best indicator. They mixed Irish-born and Irish-American uh, very successfully, as it turned out. And uh, so there were, but it is impossible to put an actual number on how many in, uh, were Irish-American as against Irish-born. The election of 1864, how are the Irish involved in the election and how did they vote? Well, the interesting thing is the election of 1864 was when, again, uh, Archbishop Hughes played a huge role in securing a lot of the Irish vote in New York. The Irish, remember, were Democrats. The Irish were Democrats because they felt that the Republican Party, while it was anti-slavery, were also anti-Irish. And there's no doubt that the Know Nothing sprung from the Republican Party and that there were a number of riots where in Louisville, for instance, up to 100 Irish were killed in a bloody riot uh, right after that election. So they were tended to be Democrats, but the major figures like Maher and Archbishop Hughes swung them back behind the Union Army in, in large numbers, the Union vote. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that they really did want to be seen as Americans. And Hughes, in fact, made a speech about how he wanted the Stars and Stripes to fly for a thousand years over St. Patrick's Cathedral. And he urged the people, uh, his parishioners, if they were going to join the army, to join the Union Army. I understand from Timothy Egan's book that General Marr campaigned for Lincoln in, in that election. Yeah, Lincoln actually... Uh, met Marr several times in the White House and discussed the war with him and particularly the status of the Irish Brigade. There was a lot of um, tribulation within the ranks of the brigade that they were being used as, as cannon fodder, that they were being put forward into the front ranks and that they took the heaviest casualties almost uh, more than any other regiment with the exception of one or two. So there was a lot of discussion about that and, and there's no doubt that Marr discussed that with Lincoln. Um, but, you know, Lincoln really admired Maher and what he had done in his story. So there's no question that there, there was contact between them at a significant level. Do you have any comment on General Maher and what happened to him after the war in 1867? I, I, I think it was a tragedy what happened to him. I mean, he ended up falling off a ferry boat in Montana. and Nobody knows the exact reason if he was drunk or if he was pushed. Um, Timothy Egan's book deals with that very thoroughly doesn't come down on either side because there appears to be evidence that would satisfy both theories. But Maher was an inspirational figure for the Irish in America and remains to this day, you know, the great name in Irish America. Him, General Corcoran, who wouldn't bow to the British uh, prince when he came to New York. And, um, you know, Archbishop Hughes, they were the three great Irish leaders in New York at the time who secured Irish support for the Union in large numbers. Do you have any comments about General Tom Sweeney? I'm not familiar with him, to be honest. Okay. We can go off, but he's the guy who organized the invasion of Canada. Oh, yes. Sorry. John yeah. O'Neill. Well, yeah, O'Neill was sub, sub, yeah, John O'Neill was subordinate to Sweeney. Sweeney was intercepted trying to get to Canada during that time period. But he's oh, the guy okay. who organized yeah. the whole event and was a really a... A uh, hard-fighting general in the Civil War, born in Yeah, Cork. I mean there was there was there was a lot of sympathy for the Irish uh, in the ranks of the Union and the notion of invading Canada and swapping Canada for Britain 
probably wasn't as, as outlandish as, as it appears today. Um, swapping Canada for Ireland, rather. Um, well, so, if, if, you know, if, if the Johnson administration, if the Johnson administration didn't cut off the supplies, they had a much better chance of success than people give them credit for. At least that's my my reading and understanding. Because they had right. they had defeated the Canadian militia in the first battle, and were more reinforcements right. coming. You know, it's just a question. Their supplies were cut off. Their leaders were arrested. They were all pardoned. But uh, the and in fact, that's what brought a lot of the Irish Americans into the Republican Party in the later part of the 1860s, because some of them felt that the Democrats abandoned them. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, I think there was always the feeling that they were being used by the Democrats, and uh, particularly the way that many of them were signed up and misled about what they were signing up for. That was a huge issue with a lot of Irish soldiers. Um, and once they were in the army, obviously they had to say, or they would have been uh, shot as, as deserters. Um but you know there is a, there is a lot of uh, hidden history about the Irish in the Civil War, and I think the great story for me is the Pennsylvania Brigade, 69th on the day of Pickett's March, when uh, two regiments on either side of them uh, basically ran away, and they stood their ground and defended against Pickett's March until reinforcements came. So I think that's a heroic story that has never been told, which never been told enough in my book. Yeah, well, if you see the immortal movie Gettysburg, you see an Irish flag at the center of the line holding. So That's right, yeah. It's got a shamrock on it. Um, but, you know, they, they did hold, and they were very brave fighters, and they did become better Americans. They did become, they earned their citizenship by fighting for the Union, and uh, I think that was the ultimate outcome of the Civil War, that the Irish certainly didn't face the same kind of prejudice that they had before the war. And the other thing that was fascinating about researching is the number of Irish that Lincoln felt comfortable around in the White House. Uh, about nine of the, the people working for him, in fact, there was reference to the Hibernian cabal that Lincoln constantly hung out with. And they seemed to offer him some some life relief as well. The, the doorman, Ed, Ed McManus, was allegedly the only one who could make him laugh. And um, so there was, you know, a warmth there between Lincoln and the Irish, which was quite unusual given the fact that the Republican Party was seen as the enemy. But if you talk to, if you listen to somebody or you read some of the testimony of the Irish people who worked for Lincoln, they absolutely adored him. They thought he was the most amazing guy. And uh, when you look at the night that Lincoln was assassinated, um, as Charlie Forbes was was in the carriage, an Irish guy. The driver was Irish, and there was Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln and two others. That was the final journey. Now, the one thing we didn't talk about is the draft riots. Yes. Give us a, a, a synopsis of what happened, your, your appreciation of the events. I think it was the most disgraceful day in the history, or the week in the history of the Irish in America. Um, obviously, there were reasons why they were rioting. Obviously, the governor of New York had promised that nobody would be drafted, that they had enough people to fill the ranks. And then suddenly they held the draft. And of course, most of the names out of the draft were Irish. So they became very angry about that because, again, that issue of being cannon fodder was very much on their minds, particularly after Gettysburg. So when the draft took place, uh, the Irish were disproportionately called upon. They began to object to that and 
soon it became a street riot. And what they did was, uh, unfortunately, they burned a black orphanage and they killed a lot of people on the street. It was a mob that was out of control. So I'd have to say on, on their side was the fact that many of the cops and soldiers who stopped the riots were also Irish. And it was probably Archbishop Hughes, who was on his deathbed, who ensured that it finished when he called the leaders of the Irish community together and said, this has to stop. But it's not a proud day in Irish history at all. Maybe we didn't talk enough about Archbishop Hughes. Who was he? He was an amazing, amazing man. Um, you know, he, he built up the Catholic Church in New York at a time when there was great hostility to it. He was a native of Ireland, and uh, at the age of 15, he was very radicalized by a single incident when he realized that his his sister, who had died, could not be buried in the graveyard because she was Catholic. And uh, he took that hatred of Britain with him to America as a result of that. Walked as a gardener in a seminary and then decided he'd go for the priesthood. An amazing rise. And then became the uh, the leader of the Catholics uh, in, in New York. Um, and had an incredibly tough job because at the time his people were under enormous fire. In fact, the Know Nothings attacked St. Patrick's, old St. Patrick's Cathedral with weapons at one point and were just driven away by an organization called the AOH, which is still very much in existence today. So he took over at a time when literally 20,000 a month were coming in through the, not all through New York, but a lot of them were. And these were people who needed enormous care and help. And he, he built an incredible system of schools, hospitals, churches. Uh, he He got vocations from nuns and priests. So he, he basically built what we now recognize as the Catholic Church in New York, a very, very powerful institution. And he was a very um, interesting man for any number of reasons, but mainly because, you know, unlike a lot of Irish priests and nuns at the time, he didn't consider the Union to be anti-Catholic, and he worked with them rather than against them, which was a very significant thing. Why was that? Why did he have a different perception? I, I think he understood that people like Lincoln and, and the Foreign Secretary, who he knew very well, Seward, were actually people who were trying to be, or were trying to do the right thing. And uh, there's a lot of warm correspondence between him and Lincoln. And frankly, you know, he he knew that he had to save these people, and the only way he he could save these people was to work out a deal with the Republicans. Um, the other thing, the other question people ask a lot about is what was his view on slavery? But the fact is he didn't view slavery as anything as important for him and his people who were desperately fighting for their own lives in New York at the time, who were under terrible attack by the know-nothings. Um, so he didn't give the matter of slavery much thought, which I think is understandable in the context of what he had to do. It's probably not something with the eyes of history was the right thing to do. But his main issue was hundreds of thousands of, you know, Irish penniless, impecunious, uh, ill people coming in and he being the only bulwark saving them against the, the hatred of the normal things. So what is the one thing you want the reader to take out of your book? What do you want them to, to, to feel or understand after they're finished? That the role of the emigrant Irish has never been fully explored in the context of the American Civil War, that it was far more significant and important than has been given credit, 
and that Lincoln was such a remarkable character that even though they were on opposite sides of the issue, he managed to reach out and become a beloved figure to the Irish, which was quite an extraordinary feat for him to do. The author is Neil O'Dowd. The name of the book, Lincoln and the Irish, The Untold Story of How the Irish Helped Abraham Lincoln Save the Union. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner, Neil. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hey, everybody. Now, if you want to see Neil O'Dowd in person, March 11th, 2019, obviously Monday, he's going to be at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street, Civil War Roundtable of New York, cocktail start at 5 o'clock, dinner at 6. It's a $60 cost for guests, $50 for members, so that's one reason to become a member. And the club meets at 3 West 51st Street. Off the corner of 5th Avenue and 51st Street, close to St. Patrick's. If you want to go, though, you got to call for reservations in, in advance. And the phone number is 718-341-9811. So call for reservations in advance. 3 West Club is a is a great place to go. You well, know now it's built by suffragettes, I might add. And this is the a big year for everybody. So um, maybe we should talk about suffragettes. Yeah, maybe we should. Why don't we get somebody on? Because that is, they did, they raised the money, they bought the land, then got the building done before Rockefeller Center and everything else went up around there. So they were ahead of their time. Now, the Three West Club is also home to the Lambs Club. That's right. And in in a couple of weeks, we're going to have 
Joyce Randolph, Trixie. the original Trixie from the <laughs> Jackie Gleason Honeymooner show. And you're going to say, wait a minute, how old is she? <laughs> but she is about 94 years of age. She's still kicking and she goes to the Lambs Club every a once in a while. member of the Lambs Club and she goes on Friday nights at 3 West. They have people that they, they put on a show. It's so nice. Right. And of course, a couple together. of weeks ago, we saw Larry Storch. And he's alive, too. <laughs> yeah. F Troop, you know. And so, you know, he's he's well in his 90s, too. I don't think all the members of the Lambs Club are in their no, 90s. But. No. <laughs> okay. Now, St. Patrick's Day is coming soon. That's why we have Neil Smith and talking about the Irish and the Civil War. And don't forget our in-house resident artist, David Kincaid. Ah, yes. You know, he's got some great albums about the Irish and the Civil War. And, of course, he's the author, singer of On Hallowed Ground, which is the song that wraps us up. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.